Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 11th, 2021. It is Veterans Day. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so we have a grab bag of issues to talk about. We got COVID case numbers going up, uh, even though we have hospitalizations and deaths going down. We have um, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We have, I don't know what, we have inflation's political, uh, the, the very real fear that inflation um, is going to be a major, if not the major, political issue of the next year. We keep seeing stories about the White House uh, terrified, uh, sad, upset that it's happened this way because they were really hoping it wouldn't and all that. Let me start there because it just seems to me if we were going to want to play like, you know, rank punditry, as Jonah would call it, and sort of project out into the next couple of weeks. Um, obviously, the big outstanding political issue of the year is the Build Back Better big spending bill. And um, what we have now is the opportunity for Joe Manchin who is one of the two senators who can now block the, who can simply kill the bill off. Um, already hinting that he is going to say, we can't spend this money uh, when we are in an inflationary spiral. So rather than say, I want to work with this and we're going to try this. And of course, you know, all things being, we would want that. He may say, look, I'm just going to save my party and the country uh, from disaster and take the hit. We're not, I'm not doing this. I'm voting against it because of inflation. And that represents, I think, a very interesting play on his part if if he were to take that uh, role. Um, he's already established that he thinks spending anything more than a, a trillion five is is not on. But I think he can say, given the numbers that we see, I mean, that is really, really not on, and maybe we should just not do it at all or wait until inflation is broken, and then we can then we can, re- we can start it up again <laughs> with, with another bill. Anybody got any thoughts on this? I mean, he's been saying the same thing for a very long time now. We're just – people are engaged in a Talmudic analysis of what he actually really means when he's being extremely clear that it's time to pause. And we haven't even signed this uh, – <clears throat> one trillion, roughly one trillion dollar, like five hundred billion in new spending, but a trillion dollar total uh, infrastructure bill. It's going to inject a whole lot of new capital into the economy. It's going to chase after too few goods. It's going to worsen the inflationary cycle, as far as we know. Um, so why would he change his mind? You know, what's what's the condition that's going to that's going to make it? And and also, why would Democrats, who are deeply concerned about their electoral prospects, Really, if you shot them through full of you know sodium pentothal, would they say that this is going to really make our electoral prospects better? I'm sure they can rationalize themselves into that belief, but it's a rationalization. It's also, I think, Manchin and, and uh, more moderate Democrats have to resp- are constantly having to respond to the confusion that's created by the president himself. I mean, yesterday he basically said that spending all this money is going to ease inflationary pressures. And again, like the average American looks at that and says, "What? That makes no sense." I, I'm looking at my grocery bill. I'm looking at my gas bill. 
why why would you tell me that spending trillions of taxpayer dollars is actually going to ease that? Particularly when uh, Biden says, as he's been doing for weeks now, this I think this is the least effective line. 17 Nobel Prize winning economists say that this is going to be good for the economy. Like that, that, that is the exact type of thing that people who are feeling the actual results of what's happening economically have absolutely no sympathy for. I prefer four out of five dentists to tell me about inflation. That's just me. <laughs> I mean, you know, the central problem here is Biden, look, none of us is an economist. Um, you know, we're mildly literate, I guess, in, 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 in these matters. And what Biden says yesterday that, um, you know, inflation is worrisome, even though wages are going up. He is he is um, he is demonstrating elementary uh, like economic illiteracy. Wages going up is a great thing. It's unambiguously a great thing. It is also inflationary. I mean, I mean, it's not deflationary. It can be inflationary, obviously, that if the cost of workers goes up and if a lot of people have more money to spend and they're going into the market chasing goods than competing over goods, the price of goods goes up and that's inflationary. I mean, there there are ways in which inflation, moderate inflation is part and parcel of a, of a healthy economy um, or at least an economy that, that, that is, you know, charged, but not supercharged. Right. But if you have the president of the United States saying, gee, I mean, inflation's bad, but wages are going, I understand he wants to get the message out that wages are going up and unemployment is going down. And we are, in fact, in a very weird situation. But, you know, the fact is the last 13 years, we have been in weird economic situations that are rewriting the rules of macroeconomics because, of course, the rules of macroeconomics are garbage. Um, they are, you know, it's the famous imaginal ladder thing. You know, the economists are all in a, are all in a giant sinkhole and somebody says, how are we going to get out of here? And the economist says, imagine a ladder. Um, the problem with macroeconomics is that it describes the last war, not the present war. We almost everybody I know believe that the stimulus and everything that happened during the Obama 2009, 2010 period was going to have an inflationary, perhaps even stagflationary effect, particularly and the fed doing QE2 and all of that. And that that didn't happen so that, you know, some of the things that happened in the past when the economy was maybe a little less complicated turned out not to be happening in the present. Um, and so the rules needed to be revised. That's one of the reasons we've been having these fights over the last decade over some of these claims that would once have just seemed bizarre, like, you know, <clears throat> government spending isn't inflationary, which was axiomatic. But you have the sort of the liberal leftist academics saying it's not inflationary. There's no way that it's inflate. Look, you know, uh, because income inequality, because they sort of use some standard or other to say that these things are not happening. But clearly, nobody really understands the cross pressures that are creating the crisis that we seem to be sort of like inexorably falling into. And that's a problem that requires, I have to say, modesty on the part of policymakers like you know what we really don't it's like we really don't know what's going on so maybe the last thing that we should be doing is you know um a radical measure to increase the size of government because maybe look maybe it'll work maybe you know growth will go to 10 percent 
and then you know inflation will be at seven percent, and so we will have a net positive, and everybody will be rich. Maybe it'll work. Probably it won't, and you shouldn't bet on it. In any case, one of the things that we've learned is that we just don't understand the mechanisms of the economy. We don't understand we our measurements are all off too, right? I mean, we have these things where we get job reports, and then three months later, it turns out there were five hundred thousand more new jobs than we thought there were originally. We don't even have root understanding of the basic structure of our economy anymore. And we got these, we got the people in the White House and the people whose party is in power very airily talking about spending trillions of dollars that we not only don't have, but that if you said to somebody in a, you know, if you said to somebody, a stranger on the street who was, you know, again, marginally literate in these matters, Look, where it's a six point eight percent inflation year over year. Uh, should should the government spend two trillion dollars? And presumably, the person would say, "I don't know if that's such a good idea." Well, I, I think there's also again to the messaging issue for the Biden administration. It, it would be fine if they were acknowledging this this turmoil in in our in our ability to analyze what's really going on at the macro level, but instead. They have a kind of condescending messaging strategy that tends to blame Americans for their own problems, like the supply chains. Like, well, if you people didn't buy all that plastic junk, we wouldn't have this crisis. Not ever addressing what people with their own eyes see, which is like, well, then why are there hundreds of ships just idling because they can't unload their cargo? That has nothing. I mean, so there again, there's a kind of technocratic trust us, we're the experts. But I agree with you, John. I think what's being exposed in a lot of these discussions is the thinness of their expertise in in a lot of these matters. Look, I think the thing about Manchin is he doesn't, if I'm, if I read him right, and he would prefer not to, not to have this bill go through, he now has the perfect, he doesn't have to talk, you know, well, I like this program, but not that. I really, I want, he'll, he can say, we just can't do this right now. I'm sorry. I've been elected by the people of West Virginia. They are uncommonly affected by inflation. We can't do this right now. I'm um, not even going to talk to the merits. Like that's the whole point about Manchin can say I'm not going to talk about the merits of universal childcare and all that. Many m- many of them might be absolutely wonderful, but we can't do this right now because we're in we're on the we're on the we're on a cliff. We're on an inflationary cliff. I, and he's I, therefore he therefore I'm sorry I'm sorry. No, I, I just I think Christine's point um, about the sort of there's a big credibility problem with the Biden administration right now, uh, not just on this. I mean, there is on this because, uh, you know, the, it, they now admit that the inflation has is gone on longer and has been more dramatic than they expected. Um, but this is also the administration and the president who said leaving Afghanistan won't look like Vietnam. Uh, the COVID will take X uh, course uh, over this period of time. You know, like there's, they've lost a lot of goodwill. Uh, and so, so to suddenly, you know, think that, that sort of just recommending this massive thing um, at a, at a time, John, as you lay out where, where it would make zero sense and, and people, will just accept it is I think crazy. I mean, I think it's a very easy argument to make against them on this. 
I mean, the credibility problem also extends to COVID, which is where we should we should go now. There are some, on the one hand, very disheartening numbers. The numbers that I'm seeing here show and uh, case uh, the the decline in caseloads from the Delta variant's top of around 150,000 a day dropped to about 68,000 a day and is now up again to about 77,000 a day. So the 14-day change, according to the New York Times, is up 7%. The good news is <clears throat> that the death toll continues to fall. It's now 13% down, uh, about 1,200 a day. And so uh, we have an administration that uh, has basically lost, as, as far as I can tell, the hawks seem not to be particularly happy with the behavior, the COVID hawks, uh, meaning people who think that we should mask forever and uh or do whatever and then and the and and the people who believe that there should be no mandates and all of that are of course disgusted and angry and i'm not sure they have anything to say here because we've moved into a period in which i think we just what we're seeing here is an unalloyed tragedy not that it wasn't an unalloyed tragedy before but uh, it would appear that almost every case in the united states of a death from covid is now preventable and was preventable and that people made decisions, people have made decisions that caused them to, to, to get sick and die. Here's my, here's, here's my thinking on this. I'm looking at the New York state data from October. Federal data is screwed up in this regard on breakthrough infections, right? So that's people who have been vaccinated who have nonetheless gotten infections and, and gotten COVID. So according to these findings, uh, as of November 8th, 137,000 breakthrough cases among fully vaccinated people in New York State. Sounds like a terrible number, right? But it is, in fact, 1.1% of the population of fully vaccinated people 12 years or older. 1%. 9,000 hospitalizations among fully vaccinated people in New York State, which corresponds to one, hold on, seven one hundredths of 1% of the population of fully vaccinated people. So it has remained the case that the breakthrough infection is not a danger, is really not a danger. I mean, it's a danger in some fundamental sense that you you might be among the seven you know, uh, seven one hundredths of one percent of the people who might get hospitalized from it. Um, but you're not going to get sick from it, which means that everybody who's really getting sick from it, everybody who's dying from it, is an unvaccinated person. That's a choice. That's now unambiguously a choice. What are or the public has some underlying condition that would be exacerbated by this infection or any other infection. But it's still a choice because they're unvaccinated, is my point. In other words, the the vaccinated well, are not dying. I just dying. don't think that's true. There are breakthrough infections that, are they statistically measurable? Probably not, but breakthrough infections that result in bad health outcomes as a result of Other morbidities? Condition. I know, but in, in any case, what we know is if you have comorbidities and you get vaccinated, you are protected from COVID, except in you know, except in extremely unlikely circumstances. So, what are the public policy implications of this? 
we're back to the point at which you know that we're we're about to get the public health people say we can't let up. We can't let up. Look here, it's happening. Andy Slavitt, who ran the COVID program at the White House for three months until he was sent to spend time with his family, uh, from what we can tell, said yesterday, you know, we can't let up. No, everyone has to mask. Everyone has to socially distance. Maybe you shouldn't go home for Christmas, whatever, because of these numbers. Um, but what are the I, I, I'm just trying to think through what are the policy implications of this of this surge? Because if if the vaccines prevent hospitalization and death and mostly prevent cases. And if now, beginning in January, if you get COVID, there is now a treat, there will be a treatment, this pill that you'll be able to take. What are the policy implications? Even with the numbers going up, you have to say it's time to take off the mask. It's time to let kids hang out together in school and not sit in masks. And it's time for people to be able to go to movie theaters, not in masks. This whole thing needs to be over. But the... But yeah. sorry to interrupt, but that's actually it's interesting. This is a really interesting moment because you're seeing post uh, off year election results that that swung to the Republicans. You're seeing a few members of that of the kind of public health coalition peel away. So now Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers union, is like, well, it's fine for kids to have recess outside without masks. We're we're on board with that. Like that's a baby step for her. It's a ridiculous baby step. They shouldn't be masked at all. But this is this is the step they're taking. But I think they're going to have again to the credibility issue that that we've been talking about. They don't have any credibility. And honestly, the message they should give right now. Somebody sent me jokingly some joke that was going around where it's like the hardest part of two weeks to stop the spread is the first 600 days. I mean, people have had it. They should say, you know what? We're in this situation, which you just described, John, we have options. We Americans know how to measure risk. We know what, how to do this. Let's do this. Let's just, let's make, if you want a mask for the rest of your life, you go for it. If you don't, you know, but we're not going to mandate this stuff. It's the mandates that people are now reacting to because they don't match up with the situation on the ground. See the, the Um, don't match up with the, the end game doesn't turned out not to look like the end game everyone was envisioning. You know, they had these sort of random numbers in mind um, that would constitute the end. Um, but instead, the, in the real world, it's it's a matter of seasonal fluctuations and regional fluctuations. And this is the end game. I mean, this this is this is this is as good as it gets. And I think it's good. Because uh, you're all you have to do is opt in or opt out. If you opt in, this is good. If you if you choose to take your your chances with your life, then that that that's on you. But they need to sort of rethink the whole version of how this ends, so they can talk about it. Because they can't talk about this being the end. That would be um, a public relations catastrophe for them. To to brief points on this. The first is that Randy Weingarten is describing a universe that I don't live in. I don't know what world she's talking about. Maybe she's talking about it's my world deep, for my kids. deep blue cities, Yeah, but I'm not really that far removed from New York City. I'm a 45-minute drive, and out here, there are no masks. Businesses are open. They don't enforce it. Kids have not been wearing masks outside for a year or Are they more. wearing masks in school? They are with Yeah, breaks. okay. With They're breaks. wearing masks in school. Significant breaks. Yeah, and it's melting away. And when we have parent-teacher conferences, the very first thing they say 
unsolicited is god we're so sorry about the masking it's not our fault we know it's really onerous and burdensome and you all resent it and it's a it's something that's coming down from trenton we can't help it that's the sort of regime that i live with and i'm not that far from i'm in the suburbs and i guarantee you that is the way of life outside of every major municipality in this country so what so what that's the majority of the country john no, because it depends on the state you're in. Because if there's that's an indoor, two. if there's an part indoor two. masking mandate with kids, there's an indoor masking mandate with kids. If there isn't, there isn't. That's that's all you right. Know, but here's part two. Life. Part two is the electoral consequences, and we've been talking about this. I've been talking about this for a year and a half. That it would take an election debacle to wake them up, and it has. All of a sudden, you have a whole consensus on the left about how all these insurmountable public health obstacles that we just had to endure because the conditions were such that they mandated it, they necessitated it. It wasn't our fault. It's the environment. All of that melted away overnight because the tangible costs became too much to bear politically. And suddenly the pandemic isn't the obstacle anymore. What's your, what's your evidence? Aside My from evidence Randy is Weinberg. Jonathan Shape. My evidence is Michelle uh, 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 Goldberg. In the New yeah, York but Times. those aren't policy. My evidence is the New York Times and the New York Magazine, Adam Rice. Yeah. All of these very prominent liberals saying that we need to rein in the teachers' unions. And that's the only reason why Randy Weingarten is saying, is offering this mild concession to tangible political realities and the shifting political winds that are moving against her. Well, London Breed, I mean, various mayors and governors, uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, the new uh, the replacement for Andrew Cuomo in New York, said we need an off-ramp from COVID. But they said Eric, that. Hold on. Hold on. Eric Adams, who's going to be mayor as of, uh, as of uh, January 1st in New York City, has said he wants kids to take their masks off. The question is, we're still, we still have a circumstance in which these people are going to have to have a showdown with the public health authorities. Right. And, and they I did. hate to put it they this did. way. And they lost it. They had this showdown in the summer of 2020. Recall all these. Yeah, I know, but I know. New, but New now, York City, they had, Bill de Blasio had that very weird press conference where he was about to announce you know, that they were going to release these mitigation measures, and then he didn't show up for two and a half hours. And all of a sudden, it turned out that the public health bureaucracy had a stranglehold on him, and he had to pare this back. They knew they were walking into a buzzsaw. They knew it. And they couldn't fight their own coalition because they didn't have the evidence that it was going to hurt. They thought they were keeping their coalition together and comporting with the general public mood. Adults, the universe of adults, as opposed to parents with skin in the game, who said that we need to keep school closed for the general population. They deferred to that, and it was a mistake, and they recognize it now. I, I, you keep saying they. I don't know who the they are. Who are the they? The I mean, arbiters need, of public opinion need, on the left. We need a governor of a democratic state to start sounding like DeSantis. We need a mayor yeah. of a of a deep blue city to start sounding like DeSantis. Because that, that is the only way we get out of this. Yeah, I have we to need say, Biden like, to start sounding like DeSantis. But they, and that's the challenge, right? So here in DC, for example, people have been pushing what what these mayors in blue states are doing is still punting it over to the public health bureaucrats. So anytime anyone asks our mayor, mayor, you know, what about this indoor mask mandate? When is it going to lift? Because nope, you know, it's this is not consistently enforced, and it's really unfair to certain businesses. It's really unfair to school kids. She punts, you know, she her answer is she wears it when she feels like it. She punts it to Laquandra Nesbitt, the head of DC Health, who says, when I feel like uh, it's safe, I will do that. She doesn't even feel right. she has to provide a, an off-ramp or a metric. So like in my blue city, 
nothing. Nothing's going to change it. And, and my poor kids, like they come home every day going, well, maybe next school year I won't have to wear a mask. We're just gr- glad we can go to school this year. Our expectations need to rise. And in blue cities, there's not a demand being placed uh, on these officials yet. Maybe after the midterms. Maybe. Well, there's some movement in, uh, from Phil Murphy, who suddenly discovered that we can lift all it's restrictions, mitigation measures on on schools in, in when and if we hit an arbitrary vaccination rate among children. Um, now, that's a, a concession in a way, but not really a real one. But it's one that wasn't on offer before November 2nd. OK, but that's an important point, because Phil Murphy, of course, was uh, shocked and terrified and thought at various points on election night that he was going to lose his reelection campaign to a guy nobody whose name nobody even knew how to spell and he knew he knows that his 13 point drop in vote you know in sort of aggregate vote percentage uh, over his first election in 2017 is at least half attributable to his behavior during covid he knows that and he is now trying to close the barn door and 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 do the thing that people do like when uh, you know they say things like I get your I get the message I hear I hear your message I understand you're trying to send me a message and I hear your message but Fauci months and months and months ago said we we would be out of it when the case numbers hit 10,000 a day I mean it seems very clear particularly as we're going into the winter that we are not getting anywhere near 10,000 a day in a very long time. So, you know, elected politicians are going to have to put pressure inside the Democratic Party on Biden to say, enough, you are killing us. You are killing us. And they need to, but we, they'll, they'll only be killing you if they have focus groups where people say, get the goddamn masks off. I was about to say something worse than goddamn, and people hate when I say goddamn, and now I've said it four times. Get the masks off. Enough already. Every ninety-eight percent of people over the age of sixty-five are now vaccinated in the United States. Get the masks off. And you know, when politicians hear that message loud and clear, and they haven't been hearing it loud and clear, there, it's been, it's been, there's been a lot of noise and signal and all of that. Like they're hearing, they hear the noise and they haven't heard the signal. The signal is get the masks off. If you want to eliminate this as a political issue, because, you know, if you did it now, it won't be an issue next November, the the COVID regime that we've been subjected to. But if you don't get them off until, you know, the spring or next summer, people are going to have spent two years living. I know you say people aren't living this way, but trust me, enough people are living this way in enough places where there could be shocking electoral results that will, you know, that will rip the heart out of the Democratic Party, that it's time for them to start acting like rational actors, look at these numbers and say, this is now a chronic problem, not a crisis requiring emergency, use of emergency powers and, you know, uniform declarations of rules on human behavior. But I think part of the challenge of the president switching to that message is that once you do it also kind of acknowledges that well how for how long have we been masked up and restricted for no good reason then you know because it's because mm-hmm. if you're if you're saying okay we're not for, for how long was this unnecessary if it's just unnecessary now it was, it was unnecessary six months ago 
And there is a very influential part of the Democratic coalition that likes this as the status quo. And that is vocal about it. And it is and is putting pressure on political officials to maintain it. Uh, and that's part of their problem is they're lo- staring down the barrel of having to jettison some very influential members of their coalition in order to buck that consensus. And maybe they haven't gotten the message just yet. Okay, well, let's talk about Bambi because, you know, um, here we are in a period of, you know, job growth and, and, uh, and uh, you know, some exciting opportunities for people. And uh, when you're running a business that is in the middle of this, HR issues can kill you. And HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E, was created specifically to help small business with HR. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. You got a dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, okay, so, you know, there is this lunatic piece in the Atlantic, and I say lunatic, you know, advisedly, because I could call it psychotic, or I could call it, you know, deranged, or I could call it the sort of thing that a nice editor would have refused to publish because it is an embarrassment to him and his magazine, but it's by this guy who uh, with the with the actual name of Alexis Madrigal who has been writing about covid for you know since covid started and helped create the covid dashboard and i don't know what else all about how he finally got covid yes he did he's double vaccinated and he but he and he knew he was in trouble but he had to go to his friend's wedding and he and his wife discussed what he should do and, uh, you know, but they hadn't been anywhere. He hadn't been on a plane. He hadn't done anything. And, you know, look, if anyone was not going to get COVID after being doubled, it was him. He's an endurance athlete with a non-binary 11-year-old. And, of course, that, I don't know if you know that, but when you mention that you have a non-binary 11-year-old, uh, that's actually the sort of thing that means that you won't get COVID. Um, and so he has a non-binary 11-year-old. He's an endurance athlete, in case you wanted to know that he runs a lot, which is really nice for him. And he went to the wedding. He was wearing an N95 mask, but people took off their mask at the wedding. And then he got home and he got COVID. His wife was mad at him. His kids were mad at him. Even the non-binary one, very mad at him. And it's the worst case scenario. My kids had to come out of school, isolate with my wife. Raft of tests had to be taken to by everyone I'd had even limited contact with. Uh, and the children were so angry. They're so angry at him. Look, the vaccines are amazing. I was and am fine, he says. Um, but, uh, you know, Hey, you know, uh, I shouldn't have gone to the wedding. It's not time to, once you get COVID now, you know, you've gotten, so apparently he gets COVID. He's not sick. No one around him got sick. Everybody around him is vaccinated. Everybody is fine. And he has written this hysterical piece about in which I think you, one, one could argue that he's actually kind of thrilled that he got COVID. He wanted to get COVID because now he could write the piece about getting COVID. And this perf- the performative aspect of the COVID 
you know, hawks, this kind of this kind of liberal journalist nonsense human beings like Alexis Madrigal is that first they were performative in masks. Now they're performative about getting COVID in a breakthrough. And again, as we've seen the numbers, that makes him one percent out of 99 percent of people who have been vaccinated getting a breakthrough. Right. And so that is his story. So he is writing the 1% story as though this can happen to you. I mean, yeah, anything can happen to you. You can also be hit by lightning. But, I mean, it's a view into If you're saying Jonathan Chait and others have gone rational on COVID restrictions, this is the other side of it. And this is the kind of support that that the journalist community will give to the to the world of people who say no no we can never take our masks off or yeah, we can't the other take side of it off. as you've described accurately is unhinged <laughs> untethered to anything resembling sanity um and the other side is that shouldn't be a difficult dispute to arbitrate but it is uh, only only insofar as there is a campaign of intimidation and emotional manipulation at work on democratic psyches that they find difficult to navigate. But the, the, the conversation we've been having over the course of the last you know 15 minutes here is that very tangible costs, political costs associated with these policy preferences do focus the mind. Alexis Madrigal's mind will not be focused by any circumstances, but others are and can be. But here's my question. Why didn't his editor say, come on, this is nonsense. Shut up. Why don't you write a piece about how you got COVID? You're vaccinated, and you know what? You you felt fine, and no one, you know, no one got sick around you. Why didn't you yeah, write I mean, that, that piece? That's the yeah. I got a cold. Here's my here's my tale of woe. But but you know, it's such a big tent, the Atlantic. That's sarcasm for <laughs> they they, yes, they welcome all views. <laughs> but that's a tone this particular publication has cultivated over the course right. of the last eighteen nineteen months. I mean, this right. is not like an, a, a departure from the sort of pieces that this this publication, this particular publication has fielded over the book for a year and a half now. But yeah, that, but it's representative. Yeah. I mean, there, there are institutions out there that are simply not prepared for the on an ongoing reality where you have COVID season, uh, for example, that you, are they going to run hysterical pieces every year? You know, when, when, when people get breakthrough infections, I mean, look, we're moving into a, we're moving into permanent COVID. I mean, it's just COVID is going to be around and you're going to get COVID even if you've been vaccinated and then you're going to take this pill and you're going to be fine. I mean, that is the story. Perry, you're going to take this pill and then you're going to take this other pill that means that makes the, the first pill last longer, break down more slowly in your system, uh, which will make it even more effective and then you'll be fine. Um, you know, if if the flu, if there were a treatment for the flu, think about that. Like there is, I mean, people take Theraflu. I don't even know if it works or it doesn't work. But I mean, this is like it's flu, but there's a treatment for it. So if you get sick, you get better. And and again, if I could just that would be good. Remember H one N one, which actually did target children, and we had to do it. You know, they had to be vaccinated and stuff. But they didn't have enough vaccine for all the adults. I got that, and they gave me whatever the treatment is for the flu. You know, all that they had, they threw everything at the problem, and then, you know, I was pretty sick for a week. But 
I survived. And I mean, there's a sense in which we, the panic that we have over COVID, understandably so, because the much higher uh, death toll, we have, a lot of us are, I, this is where I agree with Noah, a lot of people have already moved into, okay, it's, it's endemic, it's like the flu, we got to, you know, move on with life. But the emergent, the people who hold the emergency powers, the Democratic coalition in particular, and the public health bureaucracy are not ready yet. And I was thinking back to that movie that, I, was it Steven Soderbergh? Someone made a movie that sort of forecast permanent COVID as a kind of dystopian society where people were locked into yeah, their- contagion. Yes. Yeah. No, no, not contagion. It was, a, it was a COVID era movie that came out during COVID starring like Demi Moore and some other folks. It was very dark and very dystopian. Oh. It was all about how it, it was like COVID 2020 or something. It, anyway, it was, it was very dark, but it was a world where the control of society was absolute in order to make sure that this, the, the horrible iterations of you know future COVID viruses wouldn't kill us all. That's, I think, what they still some of these folks still have in mind. Well, there must be some sense in which they, they like it also. I mean, they, I, 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 and I don't entirely understand it, but, you know, human nature is revealed at times of extremis, and, and there, is, there is something to being an apocalypticist and having your apocalypse happen. And I, that's why I think there is probably a very close Venn diagram vector between, you know, like green global warming hysterics and and people who have treated COVID as though it is, you know, as though it is the, the coming of the end of the world. I mean, I, well, there's, I mean, this is, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but it's kind yeah, of interesting. Ahead. The, the psychologist Theodore Reich, not, not Wilhelm Reich, but uh, Theodore Reich had this theory, right. Theory yeah. about uh, masochism. And he said, uh, people are masochists because they spend their time fearing the bad thing that can happen, you see, and the the waiting around in that fear is is the worst, most unmanageable aspect of bad things happening. So if you sort of summon the bad thing on you, it's it's a, it's an, a, a way of sort of uh, exerting some control on it. Right. So you you've now controlled the bad thing. Um, so it's a comfort in a way. Here's here's the apocalypse. Well, I've got my hands around it. I, I see what it is. Now it's in me. I can write about it. You know, yeah. um, I think there's something to that. I think it's a, I think it's an intelligent way to look at it. You want you want even more of a tangent? Greatest joke ever. Shortest, most com- concise, most uh, m- most brilliantly um, contained joke ever. Masochist says to the sadist, beat me. Sadist says to the masochist later. Greatest joke ever. Okay, um, uh, let me talk to you about uh, Aura, because um, the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but your security tools have stayed mostly the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. Most credit card companies do a good job of protecting you against fraudulent purposes, purchases, but what if a scammer files for unemployment in your name or your social media accounts are hacked? Aura's protection goes well beyond your credit card. It provides digital security protection, all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, so much more with Aura. You'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experience U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription. 
with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to A-U-R-A.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A.com slash commentary. So, um, uh, we should talk a little bit about the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case in Kenosha. Um, day seven was yesterday, and uh, you know I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, and I haven't spent my life in in courtrooms, but I watched some of the proceedings yesterday, and um, I saw things I've never seen before, and I haven't really read of before, and I gather from what I what I was reading from other lawyers that they had never seen before in which the judge completely lost his temper three or four or five times with the uh, district attorney prosecuting Kyle Rittenhouse because he attempted to sneak in to the jury information and evidence that the judge had already ruled was inadmissible. Uh, One case, uh, a video or you know some a video of Rittenhouse saying something two weeks earlier and in another circumstance an interview or stuff uh, that Rittenhouse did four months later both of which the judge had basically ruled inadmissible but had left the door open in at least one of these two cases and this district attorney kept kind of trying to allude to it and the judge screamed at him screamed and screamed and screamed at him it was fascinating because it it would appear to me that the assistant district attorney knows he has a bad case why would he risk this judge has been the judge in kenosha all the district attorney's office knows this guy's been there 38 years (laughs) he's he's been on the stand since 1983 he's 75 years old they know him they know what he's like he apparently is quite friendly to the defense in general (coughs) excuse me i'm sorry um, and, you know, the circumstances are that uh, Rittenhouse claims that he was at imminent threat or peril to his life, and therefore he shot these three guys because they were in different circumstances advancing on him or or literally hitting him or, or, or directly threatening him with a gun or something like that. And uh, taken, when you pull back from the summer of madness last summer and everything that was going on, um, you know, seems relatively arguable that that his perception you know you know you 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 lean toward you know you the defendant's uh innocence obviously uh um and so uh, he was on the stand yesterday and acquitted himself pretty well i will say didn't you know was trying to guy the defense attorney the prosecutor was trying to was trying to make him break and get him angry and get him you know to say get emotional and get him to say things he didn't want to say and he really he didn't do that all that being said he shouldn't have been there he's 17 years old you know he shouldn't be walking around with an with an with an ar-15 um you know in the middle of a riot uh he had some delusions of grandeur about protecting his community he's not even a he's a minor um this is a, you know, it was a terrible lapse in judgment and a horrible thing that he should have been there. And uh, that doesn't mean he should go to prison for murder. Um, anybody uh, have any thoughts on this? 
I have I've actually haven't been watching it. Um, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for the end. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I hate. We talked about. Uh, we we were talking. Uh, the other day about whether or not we should talk about this and i said i don't want to go into this because you know the trial is, is 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 in the midst but it just was an amazing spectacle this judge screaming at the at the prosecutor and saying that he did not believe the prosecutor was acting in good faith i don't believe you he said the prosecutor said i did what i did in good faith and the judge said i don't believe you that kind of you know you don't even see confrontations like that in real life ever well, there is also something to be said for how this has been covered in the mainstream media versus in alternative uh, news sources, because the if you only read mainstream media, you will you would think that, you know, uh, the, the prosecution's case is airtight. And, and, you know, you even have members of Congress tweeting that this kid should be locked away for life. I mean, the, which is ridiculous if you actually I've I've tuned in off and on uh, over the week, the, the past week, and there have been pretty dramatic moments where like the prosecution's lead witnesses are get on the stand and contradict what they'd said in earlier statements, which actually helped the defense. And the prosecution's case has not been very strong if you over the course of the week. Um, clearly, I think a lot of people, if they watch it, would think this maybe they overcharged this kid. Like there's definitely charges that they could have made stick and this isn't one of them. They failed to even include evidence for some of the charges they wanted, like the curfew violation and stuff. So those were dismissed. It's kind of a jumble of a case if you look at it from, you know, if you're watching what the prosecutor's trying to do here, you would never know that. The media narrative has been consistent. You know, horrible white kid with a gun killing people and, you know, this is terrible. He should be in prison. It's, it, it, it has not delved at all into the weaknesses of the case or the weaknesses of the charges that were initially filed. Well, and then when the case went to trial and you have reporters in the courtroom or people watching the way I was watching over the PBS NewsHour feed, it's inarguable. Like the New York Times coverage said this was a bad day for the prosecution or, you know, the witnesses for the prosecution appeared to give some ballast, some some of the defense's arguments that he was a direct threat for his life, including one of the three people that he shot who was on the stand on Monday. And basically said, yeah, I was, you know, I just, I lied to you before when I said that I hadn't said this or whatever it was, something like that. Or I mean, that he had I, a weapon pointed at, he had a he gun. He had a gun, I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and, and yesterday the prosecutor tried to say that, um, you know, somehow it was less safe. It was, it, it was safer for Rittenhouse that Gross Cruz was, was approaching him with a gun in hand than if Gross Cruz had been 15 feet away holding the gun, that 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 Gross Cruz was was making him safer by approaching him with the pistol, because he's grasping at straws and trying to, you know, he's just trying to get into the jury's head and create at least some conditions under which, which the jury will think that um, that what what Rittenhouse wanted to do was, you know, kill people and that he was really there to kill people and he seen his opportunities and he took them. That is the only way that he will get convicted is a sense in the jury's head that that was actually what he wanted. There have also been a couple of uh, data points that suggest some some uh, threats to the jurors or intention to intimidate jurors. Someone was filming the jurors when they were getting on and off a bus. There have been some statements made by family members of George Floyd about we're we're watching you, we're watching you. Stuff that is, you know, if you've ever served on a jury in a criminal trial, I have served on several because I live in D.C., uh, you the intimidation thing is not a joke. That is absolutely something that should be taken seriously and, and should not be happening, particularly in such a high profile case. 
Um, you know, the other thing I think Jim Jim uh, uh, Jim Treacher, <laughs> the tweeter, uh, uh, put down is um, you wouldn't really know this, but basically this is one white guy who shot three white guys. This is not a racial case, except that Kenosha had erupted in a in a in a riot relating to the Black Lives Matter stuff. Uh, and it, you know, and one of the guys that was that was killed, I mean, the uh, uh, Rosenbaum is a convicted rapist, and a, and clearly, if you see him on this videotape, looks like a, an elementary psychopath. Like he's 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 terrifying just to see his face or hear his voice. Um, and so it's a weird thing for people to be taking up the cause of his of, of Rittenhouse's prosecution. It does not actually fit the case, doesn't fit the contours of the model you might expect, which is it's one thing to make a racial case out of a white kid killing black people. And it's another thing to make some kind of a weird case about how we should lock him up and throw away the key when it's a white kid shooting three other white people and all four of them seem to be on the street in the middle of this riot for weird emotional purposes. Like Rittenhouse, if you take him at his word or in his, um, you know, if you believe that his own description of his emotional state is accurate, he was having some kind of a fantasy hero complex where he was going to go out and help and help protect people because the cop and it's like wh- who are what are you doing like you know you're you're not even you're you're not even 18 years old and you don't have training with weapons and you should you should stay in your house and then these other guys who just seem to be up to anarchist psychotic mischief in the midst of a completely uh, you know, uh, a, a city in which all bounds of propriety and all all the guardrails had been removed because the riot was ongoing and the cops had basically vanished into the woodwork. And so you have this kind of four guys in the in the middle of some kind of bizarre, you know, drama, uh, and this then becomes a kind of flashpoint, ideological flashpoint. That's very strange, I think. And with that, we will uh, we will close up shop till tomorrow. <laughs> for for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>